I would like us in the sermon today to look back at Hebrews chapter 5, uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, the section that we read together on page 1203. And if I was to give this another title uh, other than the one that is given, I think, in the bulletin, it would be that this is about Jesus as the great bridge builder. Okay, Jesus as the great bridge builder. It's entitled, the section's entitled, uh, Jesus the Great High Priest, and it speaks about him being uh, a great high priest who's gone through the heavens. Now, I don't know about you, what you think, but I think because of the culture we live in and uh, the connotations that somehow have been added to this uh, title, it's taken on kind of weird cultic connotations, the idea of a high priest. You know, there's, there's kind of cultic, weird things connected with that terminology, isn't it? There's high priests of, of uh, evil and high priests of this and high priests of that. And it seems to have been um, taken out of its context, out of its biblical context. And maybe when we hear the whole idea of a high priest, um, unless we know our Old Testament and unless we know what the Bible teaches about that, it can seem to be quite a weird uh, term. Uh, that's been uh, hijacked, as it were, by a lot of uh, uh, cults and and, and different uh, organizations today. But really, the whole idea is that he is a bridge builder. He's uh, a representative for us before God. It's interesting, uh, in Latin, uh, the word priest that's used here is translated pontifax, which uh, is an interesting word because it means a builder of bridges. And that's uh, where uh, the Catholic Church would get uh, the use of the, the pontiff, the holy pontiff for the Pope. And the word pontificate would come from that, which is a shame really because pontificate has, again, negative connotations, isn't it? If you pontificate about something, you're kind of you're preaching down your nose at somebody or you're, you're being very dogmatic about things in a, maybe a very insensitive way. And, and, well, maybe there's reason for that, of course. But it's, it's again, it's not true to the meaning of the word, uh, which is a bridge builder. And that's what I've chosen to, to use for the picture of Jesus today. Because Jesus in this chapter, as throughout the whole of this book, is being presented as the the unique Savior, the great Savior, the only Savior. And uh, I'm calling him here the great bridge builder, the bridge builder that we need spiritually to enable us to know God, to understand God, to be forgiven, to know forgiveness for eternal life, and to uh, know hope and a future. And again, the writer here just keeps on building on the character of Jesus and the importance of Jesus and the significance of Jesus for us in our lives. Jesus is the bridge builder that we need. And we can see that in several ways. We can see it firstly in the name that he's given here. He's called Jesus, and you know, titles in the Bible are very important. Again, they're not so important to us today, but very important in the Bible. And the names are significant. Here he's called Jesus, the Son of God. And so that reminds us of why he is a, a, a bridge builder extraordinaire for us, why he's good uh, for us to help us to reach God, because there's a great gap between ourselves and God because of our sin, and he's the bridge builder 
uh, between ourselves and God, and we'll go on to see a little bit more about that. He is Jesus, the son of Mary. Jesus, the name given to him as a human being. He becomes flesh. We saw that last week or the week before. He's one of us. He becomes one of us in order to redeem us, in order to save us. He's not an angel. He's not a seraph. He's not a spirit. He's one of us, and that's why he can represent us before God, because he takes on human flesh. In a couple of weeks, I'm going out to America to see Scott and Joe, and I'm going out particularly because it's Scott's final year of playing soccer out there, and he's got his last game, and it's called the Seniors Game, and the Seniors Game, he gets, you know, they get presented to all the other teams, and they, they, you know, it's a special day for the, the seniors, and uh, someone also from their family usually goes there as well, if they can, to kind of represent the family, and so I'm going because I can represent him, and I'm his dad, and he's got my blood, and I've, uh, I share in that role of being a representative to him, or if I, I go out there and I speak, and they'll know I'm Scottish, and I can represent the Scottish people because of who I am, because of where I've been born, and because of how I've been brought up, and it's like being an ambassador. You can do something because, you know, the blood runs through your veins, or because there's a legitimate way in which you can represent your people, or your family, or, or whatever it is, and here God, Jesus Christ, can represent us because He becomes Jesus, the Son of Mary. He becomes human being. He becomes flesh and blood, family. But not only is he the one who is representing us in that way as Jesus, the Son of Mary, but he's also, we're told here, Jesus, he's the Son of God. And it's a bit like that helps us to understand why he's a perfect representative before us, before God, because he becomes flesh, but also he is God. And, uh, you know, when you think of a bridge builder, well, at least in in some instances, a bridge builder links two sides of a chasm, but there's also a kind of drawbridge, which uh, opens up a castle, for example, to the people outside. But it comes from the castle, and, and it goes down so that people can cross it. And it's a little bit that, like that, that he is, uh, the bridge comes from God, and it's let down so that we can come through. Because we need that great divine answer, because the chasm between us and God is like this uh, deep, deep hole that is dark and black. There is death itself, and we can't cross that into God's presence because of uh, God's judgment on us, because of our sinfulness and our rebellion against Him in our lives. It's far too great for us to build that bridge back to God. We can't just come to God and say, I'm trying my best. I'm trying my hardest. Is that enough for me to be right with you? Is that enough to be, for me to be in relationship with you? He says that isn't the case. Our only hope back to God is by coming to God through Jesus Christ and what he has done as that bridge builder, which we'll go on to see a little bit more about. He has intervened on our behalf. God has provided the solution for us. God has provided the intervention. And because of that, Jesus is a great high priest. He's not a good high priest. He's not a not bad high priest. He's not a half-decent high priest. He's an excellent, great high priest. He's a great bridge builder. He's the only bridge builder between ourselves and God. There's no way back to God. There's no way to forgiveness. There's no way to eternal life without coming through Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of why Jesus has come and why we worship him and why we want to know more about him. 
He's the bridge builder we need because of the title here that we see explains about him. But also in a more practical way for us, he's the great bridge builder for us as believers. We need to know about Jesus. We need to know more about him as we go on. He's a great high priest because he knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like. He's a good representative because he knows what it's like to be us. We said a little bit about that last week, but we see it uh, in two ways. We see it in the fact that he was uh, sympathetic to us. In verse 15, if you look at that, uh, it tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. So he knows what it's like to be us in two ways. Well, in at least two ways, probably a lot more, but only two in this chapter. The first is in temptation. Now, who of us don't know about temptation? Temptation to do wrong. Sometimes temptation to do wrong on our own level, on our own standards. Sometimes temptation to do wrong according to God's word and God's uh, standard. But he knows what it was like to face temptation. We're told that in the passage that we read together. Because Jesus took a human body that was subject to weakness and temptation or testing. He didn't take a glorified body. He didn't take a body that uh, somehow was amazingly divine and was free from all these things. He took a body that was prone to temptation. He knew pain. He knew suffering. He knew sleep deprivation. He knew the need for food, the need for nourishment. He knew frustration. He knew struggles. Uh, He knew the limitations of what it was like to live in a fallen world. And he was tested. He was tempted. Tempted to sin. He was tempted in many ways we don't understand and know about, but we do know one or two of the things he was tempted. You know, he was tempted to look after number one when he was tempted uh, of Satan in the desert. He was tempted just to say, look, forget about what you've come to do. Just look after yourself. These guys aren't worth it. He was tempted to abuse his miraculous powers. You're hungry? Just let that bread, uh, that stones turn into bread. You can do it. Tempted about popularity, tempted to have a life of ease, tempted to reject his disciples because they were so slow to understand, tempted to bring judgment on people because they rejected him, tempted to apostasy in the Garden of Gethsemane, tempted just to abandon what he had come to do and rebel against his God. A million other ways in which he was tempted to not be our Redeemer that are not recorded. Yet he resisted that temptation he chose to obey his father who he'd come to serve, and he chose to make the decisions that were grace-filled. He was able not to sin. Tempted as we are yet without sin. Unlike us, who are tempted and who cannot choose, naturally cannot choose not to give in to temptation. We can outwardly do that, but we can never do it in a way that will please God because our motives will never be to glorify God unless we have come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But he is one who is, understands temptation. So he's gentle, like the good high priest that's spoken about in uh, verse 2. Gentle with us when we're ignorant, when we're wandering away from him. He says, well, he understands, he's gentle with us. And that's a great challenge to our understanding of this holy God that we worship today. He is gentle and he is sympathetic and he's understanding and he, is, he knows what we're going through. 
And that's a great challenge to our understanding of God in prayer, but it's also a a great challenge to the way we respond as Christians to others. Our response as those who are to be Christ-like Christians to other people, that we also are to respond with sympathetic uh, listening, with a a care and a gentleness and a, a softness that's strong, but is also Uh, recognizing our own weakness. So he is a really great high priest because he sympathizes with us in temptation, but also he sympathizes with us in suffering. In verses 8 and 9, we have that. Uh, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was so undesignated uh, by God to be a high priest of the order of Melchizedek. That is that Jesus in his life and in his lifetime became, was made perfect. Uh, It's not that he was imperfect, but he was made suitable, in other words, to be our Savior. In other words, whenever he was faced with temptation or with suffering, he responded in the way that perfectly made him a suitable Savior. Because when we're tempted, we fail. When we suffer, we respond in the wrong way and we often fall into sin. But Jesus, as our representative in temptation and in suffering, responded perfectly. He didn't sin in thought, word, or in deed. And so he becomes the one who then goes on to be our Redeemer. He suffered in his life, perfectly submitting himself to the Father's will all the time in ways that we can never do in order to be a perfect substitute in our place. No more so than in Gethsemane, uh, where we read that he sweated drops of blood. His capillaries burst uh, on uh, the inside of his forehead because of the intensity of the strain and the pressure of what he was going to do. And it was as if he was sweating drops of blood. Uh, We're told there in verse 7, during his life, Jesus on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence submit reverent submission. He was Jesus going to the cross. And it wasn't just like he was going to die on a cross. There's lots of guys, lots of women, lots of men have died nobly and died uh, without fear and died courageously on a cross or in any, any other way, martyrs. But Jesus was recognizing uh, in his suffering something far greater than the physical death of Calvary. He was recognizing that there was a spiritual price being paid on the cross where he was facing a second death. That is death, separation from uh, God, God his Father, who he'd lived in eternal relationship of love with, eternally. and he sensed his Father's pain, and he sensed his own terror at that. But in doing and facing the second death and facing the separation from the Father and the judgment of our sin and taking our sin upon him, he was, he, was, he was doing what nobody else could do. He was paying the price for our sins because we couldn't do that. I, I really wish I could make that more clear. I feel that I'm struggling with the words and I long that the Spirit will come and take that and make that absolutely clear to you that On the cross, Jesus did for you and for me what we cannot do for ourselves. He took the guilt of our sin and he took the punishment, the justice and the right punishment uh, against us and he took it upon himself because his 
father recognized that was the only way and that the cost was immense. And he substituted at that point when he was tempted to say, well, why would I do that? With the tears and with the blood and with the sweat and with everything, he says, I'll do it. I will do it. I, I will do the Father's will. He submitted, as we're told here, submit, he learned obedience from what he suffered and was made perfect, became the source of salvation because he went and faced uh, the punishment and the separation and the guilt for our sins on himself. Our substitute. He's a great high priest. He does it in our place. He's Jesus and he's God. And he does it in our place. He emptied himself of all his divine rights and uh, as he went on the cross into death, he let go, entirely let go of being God, as it were, and entrusted himself to the Father who would raise him from the dead and who would vindicate him as Redeemer and sin-bearer. Absolute perfection. But we need a miracle of God to accept that. And to see it and to understand it, please pray about that. And he's, uh, it's, he's, he's a perfect bridge builder because he's a Jesus, son of God, because he's sympathetic. But also, and this other level is because God is also the architect of this salvation. It is to God that we need to, to be reconciled. We need to be made friends again because our sin separates us. And it's God who provides the answer but not kind of from a distant, faraway, disinterested, unconcerned way. It's from a loving involvement, huge involvement in us. We're told severally, every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God. Appointed by God. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God. And in verse 10, and once made perfect, he was designated by God to be a high priest. So God's hugely involved. Because God's the architect. God's the bridge-building architect here, as it were. It's not something that is human. It's not something that's man-made. It's not something that just has developed over the centuries. God is the architect, and therefore it's got to be perfect. Because if, if it's not perfect, and if it's not from God, then it's worthless. And we've got a full congregation here today listening to the gospel being spoken from Hebrews 5, and it's just a waste of time. God the Father is, is the architect of the salvation because He knows exactly what we need and He knows our hearts and He knows what we're like and He knows our rebellion against Him and He knows we might be as good as the next person as we look around us, but before Him He sees our need and He sees that we're separated. We don't love Him as we should. We don't love one another as we should and we are eternally lost unless we come to Jesus Christ. God the Father chooses the Son God appoints him to represent us. God designates him. God seals him. God justifies us through him in all that he has done. If any of you have been in Edinburgh for any length of time, you'll be beginning to rejoice that some of the roadworks are actually going away. And that we're ne the trams are nearly finished. They're, they're almost done. All the wires are up. They're nearly done. And probably in the next few months barring an earthquake or something, the trams will start running. They'll be being tested in the next few months, up and down. Nobody will be on them apart from council workers, but they'll be being tested up and down the road. And then eventually they'll be given a completion certificate and we can ride on the privilege of being Edinburgh citizens for about 20 pounds a go to ride on the trams 
if we ever want to go to the airport. If we want to go anywhere else, I don't know what will happen, but that's what we've paid £17 billion for. But they will be given a completion certificate. And it's as if Jesus Christ, as if God, in uh, sending Jesus and in then uh, seeing Jesus, learning obedience to be our Savior, and then dying on the cross for our sins, and then uh, being in the grave for the, on the, till the third day, Jesus, God the Father, raises him from the dead to the throne of grace. And it's like that's the completion certificate. It says, absolutely, I absolutely accept what Jesus has done on behalf of the people who needed a redeemer. And he is enthroned and he is victorious. And we've sung about that today. Death is defeated because God has defeated the power of death in raising Jesus from the dead. And for everyone who trusts in Jesus, death is defeated. And we will go on and live with him forevermore because of what he has done. It's a great victory that we believe in. And he's, we're told he's made a priest in the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to speak about that today because uh, there's a lot more about that in chapter 7. I'll come back to that when we do so. But Christ is in the heavens, and he's in the heavens, as we're told, uh, as we read at the beginning of that section, we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens for us. So he's in heaven. We go to be with him in heaven, but we have eternal life with him now uh, through what he has done if we take him as our Lord and Savior and recognize him as such. So, very quickly, how do we respond to uh, truths like this about Jesus being the high priest? And remember, this was written to Jewish Christians who knew all about the high priestly uh, structure of the Old Testament and how the high priest represented the people before God, but also needed to get forgiveness for his own sins because he was a sinner. And they knew that that high priest was pointing forward to a redeemer. So they applied that truth to their lives. Jesus being the great representative. What about ourselves? What's our response? Well, can I ask you, uh, I'm going to speak to two particular groups of people very quickly. First is, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would invite you to do so. And I'm going to use culinary culinary illustrations to do with food. Uh, If you're not a Christian, I'm going to invite you to taste and see that God is good. Psalm 34 speaks about that. Taste and see that God is good. In other words, uh, you know, go to Jesus Christ yourself in prayer. That's how we speak with him. Uh, It's a spiritual relationship. So even though you may struggle with that concept of praying because you're not sure if God exists or Jesus exists, can I ask you nonetheless to do that, to do what you think is maybe crazy or uh, unwise uh, or you hope no one else sees you doing it? Can I ask you to do that? Ask him to show you himself. Ask him to show you your own heart as he sees it and your own need as he sees it. And ask you to uh, ask him to help you understand the gospel message and his love for you. Uh, I would love to do that, but I can't. We need God's help to do that. And ask you to do the impossible, which is to ask him for the gift of faith, to believe, to wrestle with that, to struggle with it, to think about it. Because if it's true that God is your maker and uh, God knows your thoughts and the attitudes of your hearts and knows all about you and knows your needs, 
and has declared clearly your, your need for redemption, your lostness, the fact that you're dying physically, which uh, only speaks of a spiritual death and separation, which is much more solemn and eternal. She says, will you come to me? I'm the great high priest. I'm the answer. I'm the bridge builder that you need. God says that. If God is God, then it's worth considering that, isn't it? If God is God. If he's not God, if he's just someone we've just got in our back pockets just to keep us, pull him out every so often like a kind of lucky charm, then let's forget it. Let's forget the whole thing. But can I ask you to do that? And if you're a Christian, I'm going to continue a rather crude and crass illustration, but it's about, it's like eating a spiritual salad because here we're told a couple of times, let us, let us, let us hold firm. Let us pray with confidence. And there are several other references to let us in Romans, in Hebrews, which is reminding us of what we need to do because of what Jesus has done. Let us do this. Because of what Jesus has done, let us do the next thing. And so we respond in that way. And so as Christians, because he's a great high priest, because he's the great bridge builder, because he's sympathetic, because he loves us, because he suffered on our behalf, because his father has raised him from the dead and declared him as uh, righteous and uh, victorious, he says at the beginning of that section that we, we, led, uh, we read in verse 14, uh, 15, uh, 14, let us hold firm to the, prof- the faith we profess. So that's what I'm calling, I'm calling myself to do and all of you to do as Christians, those of you who are Christians here today. Let us hold firm the faith that we pre- uh, profess. The tendency for us is to loose, loosen the grip on our faith, is to give up, is to wander, is to go away. That's, what was tr- that's why this book was written. It was written to the Hebrew Jews uh, who were Christians, who had become Christians, but were tempted to go back into ritual Jewish thinking and uh, underestimate who Jesus is. Let us hold firm to the faith we profess, especially, can I say, in suffering, when we're struggling. Because a lot of people are doing fine as Christians, and they think everything's going well, and Jesus, divine Santa Claus will give them all they want, and then things go wrong, and they say, oh, well, Jesus doesn't love me anymore. Because if my father, if he's like a father, and my father would not let these things happen to me, and he wouldn't let me suffer. But he's God who's God, and he said from day one that we will also suffer because we still remain and live in this broken and dysfunctional world. And he will use that suffering as he did to become the perfect, submissive child of God. He will help us likewise. Suffering will often be used to uh, teach us patience or to teach us grace or to expose uh, a pride or a greed or a selfishness that, that he wants to root out of us. Let us hold firm. He says, it will happen. Let Christ mold us when we're suffering and struggling. May we learn grace through it and learn uh, trust through it and forgiveness and patience and submission to the Father's will. Don't float. Don't drift. Hold on. Hold on. That's the picture. Hold on to the faith we profess. That's a, a real active verb that's being used there. You've made a profession, you know. talks about a profession. You've made a profession of being Christians, of trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Um, before the church, sometimes before the elders and before your friends, that they know that. Uh, don't let go of that. There's no other bridge. There, there's no other way back to God. And He's provided that. And it's full and it's free and it's, 
It's because he loves us, and we don't need to do anything but simply accept it. He's a great high priest. The theme of this book is Jesus is worth worshiping and worth following and worth serving and worth believing in and worth dying for. That's what it's saying. It's strong, it's loving, it's compassionate, it's gracious, but it's also tough. And it's saying that Jesus is worth it. Let us therefore hold firm. And also, let us, in verse 16, uh, let us also pray with confidence. You know, he talks about being sympathetic to us, and therefore we approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Absolutely core that we are in this relationship and this communion with God. And we have this lovely kind of mixture. We go to a throne, kingly, worshipful. We get on our knees before a throne. But it's a throne of grace. He is a victorious king-priest. We'll see a bit more about that with Melchizedek when we look at him in detail, because Melchizedek in the Old Testament was different from all the other Old Testament priests. He was a king-priest. And Jesus is from that order. He's a king-priest. He has a throne, but it's a throne of grace. In other words, we have the power when we pray with confidence. We know that he has the power to answer our prayers as he sees fit but it's a throne of grace, a throne of sympathetic, understanding, gentle love. He says, I know you struggle. I know you're weak. I know it's difficult, especially in suffering, and I will respond to you accordingly. And so we pray with confidence because we know the Christ into whose company we're coming. You know, if you've got something really important to ask someone, the way you ask them will all be based on the kind of response you think you're going to get from them. If they're going to blast you for asking, maybe it's a boss at work or something, and if you need for a half day off, you need a half day off for something important, and they're kind of ratchety and grumpy and they fly off the handle quickly, you're going to kind of go and ask them, yeah, it's going to be difficult. You're not going to have a lot of confidence. But if you know that your boss is someone who is understanding and who is reasonable and who will, you know, kind of make an arrangement for that to happen, you will go, you'll not abuse that, but you will go confidently into his company or her company to ask for that time off because we know the response we'll get and that's the same in family and it's the same in relationships and it ought to be the same with us, uh, with God. You know the reception you're going to get when you go into God's presence and speak to Christ on this throne of grace because he's forgiven you, he's redeemed you, he's gone all the way to the cross, he has sweated drops of blood because of the pain and the suffering that he was going on in your place. He went to hell in your place. He can't express his love any more for you than that, so you have confidence as you go into his presence. He'll not always give us what we want, but you have confidence that he'll give you what you need and you have confidence that he'll never let you go, and you have confidence that he can't love you any more than he does, and you have confidence that his way is the best way, even though we simply can't see that, and we're fighting with him and saying, give us a different way. I want a different way. Don't go into his presence with a false piety that sometimes we have as if we're kind of worthless, or with a disrespectful fear, or with unbelief, or with cynicism. 
go into his presence with a holy boldness, expecting answers that will be good for us. And that will include our submission and our obedience and our patience and his commitment to change us to be like himself, which is why he doesn't always give us what we want. He wants to give us what we need to transform us so that we're becoming more and more like him as we saw him in this passage. He is the great bridge builder. And as Christians, prayer is our lifeblood. If we're not praying, we just have lost everything. Let's pray with confidence and pray with boldness and pray all the time before this throne of grace. Amen. Let's bow our heads briefly in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take your word, that it would not return to you uh, without accomplishing what you want it to accomplish in our lives, that we would be challenged by you and by the picture that you give of yourself here as the great bridge builder, the great representative uh, of us before you, uh, before God the Father. And help us to understand all the mystery of that and all the mind-blowing grace of that and help us to come to terms with the fact that we have no part to play in our salvation at that level, that He justifies us, He forgives us, He redeems us, He buys us back, He welcomes us into His family, He adopts us, He gives us inheritance, all these biblical pictures. Thank you for that. But out of gratitude, help us to love and serve you and follow you and cross that bridge into relationship with you and deal with the sin that separates us from you. Help us to do that as Christians. And may any here today who aren't Christians, may they have the courage and the boldness and the strength of character to uh, find a place of privacy and quiet and pray to you. And uh, just with simple words, ask that you would make yourself clear to them. We pray for that, and we know we need God for that. So help us and bless us in our continued fellowship and worship, and as we sing together, may we know God's presence and God's nearness and God's grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.